Okay, we're in Luke chapter 22. If you could rise for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, raise your hands. Verse 20. Luke chapter 2, verse 28 says this. It says, but you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on my thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It is your word that builds us up, and it's true that your people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And Lord, we pray that you would build us up in that knowledge today, Lord, that we would go out this week and be able to give Christmas cheer, Christmas glory, Christmas joy to the world around us, Lord. That's what we want to do. We want to glorify your name. Please do that in, a, in and through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. Jesus has had these guys, these 12 apostles, for three years. He is so deeply connected with these guys. He, we spent some time in verse 15 last week where Jesus is about to have the Last Supper with them, and he says, with fervent desire, with fervent fervent desire. I have so much wanted to break bread with you, he says in verse 15. And John chapter 13, it's a parallel of the same account right before the Lord's Supper. John chapter 13 says, uh, right before eating with him, it says he loved his own and he loved them to the end. And so he has this Passover feast with them, roasted lamb with bitter herbs. And, And at the end of the dinner, he broke the bread and gave it to them saying, this represents my body, which which." I give to you, and then he gave them the cup, and he says to he said to them, I, I give you this cup, it represents my the blood that I give to you. And 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 so then uh he says a shocking thing at that point. He says, But someone at this table is gonna betray me. Someone at this table is gonna betray me. And in verse 23, the disciples start to question themselves about uh, which of them would do such a thing. But somehow the conversation 
takes a twist and, and turns around. And in verse 34, they start arguing who is the greatest among them? Who is the greatest? So it, it began with betray Jesus, betray him. Could that be me? No, I would never do that. It must be you. <laughs> it's not me. Listen, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest disciple Jesus has. No, you're not. I am. You? No way. That would be me. And so it turns into this crazy, um, crazy argument. And, and you know, we, we realize, though, when we read it with each other last week, that really, the Bible says when we read the Word of God, we're reading into a mirror, and we're just see, seeing what's in our own heart. That's in our own heart, the Bible says. And Jesus interrupts the argument. In verse 25, he says, listen, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. In other words, in the world, it's all about who's king of the mountain. Out in the world, it's all about who's king of the mountain. Who is higher? Who is better? Who has more influence, more power, more people under their control, more people serving them, more people at their beck, of call, beck and call? Who deserves the most respect? Who can get the most respect uh, in their life? That's what he says to them. But then he says, but not so with you. The world's all, all about respect. Oh, how often I hear that. But then he says in verse 26, but not so with you. With you, it's not going to be all about respect. Rather, the one who is greatest among you is the one willing to take the lowest uh, place. In John 13, it says at this point, he actually gets up, takes off his outer robes, has nothing much more than a loincloth, gets down on his knees, and he washes their feet. And the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servant, that was their job. And here, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is doing that. And then um, it, it... yeah, it, it says there uh, in verse 27, it says, For who is greater, the man who sits down at the table or the man who serves the one sitting down at the table? It's the one who sits down at the table, right? Isn't that what the world thinks? Of course. But then he says, But I, but I, but I am among you, not over you. Notice how it says that in verse 27. He says, but I am among you. Doesn't say I'm over you. He is. He's our Lord. But that he's saying here, the lesson here is, I am among you as one who serves. So you may have thought that he may have just been getting started at this point, just warming up. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, they had just been arguing about who is greatest, so he's going to go get them now. Get them, Jesus, get them. You know, this type of thing. Uh, uh, you know, after being with him for three years, they're arguing about this. Surely he's going to ride this one for a while, but no. Instead, he lays on the grace big time. In the most over-the-top way, grace, verse 28, he says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. 
but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And then it says, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But you are those who have continued with me in trials. Can I tell you guys something? Every single one of you who's given your life to Jesus, who's handed over your heart to him, when you stick with Jesus, when you stick with him, when you continue to follow him, when you choose to continue to publicly identify with him, walk with him, in spite of the opposition of your family, in spite of the opposition of your coworkers, in spite of the opposition of the media, of Hollywood, of uh, you know, professors, whoever, when you stick with the Lord, it blesses him. It blesses him. but you have continued with me in my trials. It blesses him when the whole world is mocking him and you stick with it. Is that a strange thought? You can bless God? You can. But you are the one who have stood with me in my trials. You know, these guys, their behavior here is awful in chapter 22, arguing about who is the greatest. Yes, that's awful, awful, but let me tell you, from Jesus' perspective, when those Pharisees came along trying to destroy him, guess who stuck with him? They may have been bumbling along the way, but it was them. When the Sadducees came around, around trying to destroy him, these guys stuck with him when people left him in droves, in droves. It says in John 6, over 5,000 people went from adoring him to saying, enough is enough, I'm out of here. Who stuck with him? These guys did. It's a blessing when you stick with your Lord. When you continue to publicly identify him, when you don't hide yourself in shame, it blesses the heart of the Lord. I, don't you want to do that? I do. Bless the heart of the living God. Verse 29 it says, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, you hear the advice from time to time, you know, if you're going to spank your kids, you better be embracing them at the end, right after, or time out or whatever. It better all end with and embrace. A smart psychologist at Harvard or wherever, Stanford, Princeton, didn't make that up. Jesus did. He gives them a good whacking. 
not physical. Look, the world's doing what you guys are doing, trying to shove each other out so you can have the, the greatest power. But then he, so he, they got their spanking, but then he just embraces them here. He says, you guys have stuck with me. And in my trials, I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to give it to you. You know, he, this is a reference to his return. He would return. He would establish a kingdom on earth that life one day uh, will look and feel very different than it does today. Isaiah chapter 11 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And, you know, we're going to have that someday. We are going to be in, in a world, Jesus says, where the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know if you guys saw or heard the new, the new billboard on Times Square. Did you see it about Christmas? Anyone see that? Can we put it up here? Who needs Christ during Christmas? Nobody. Atheist.org. We're not going to have any of that when Jesus comes in and, and returns. Now, you can take that off. We don't want to look at that very long. But, but listen, rather than getting anger, and there's a, there's a time for, for righteous anger. Let's, let's do the same thing Jesus did. Let's embrace these people. Let's pray for them. Let's intercede for them. Yeah, we'll give them a rebuke, but then pray for them. And bless them. That's what Jesus does here. It says, and, and the, the, the world is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord, Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 11, as the waters cover the sea. I went down to Liberty University with my daughter, Elise, and la- world's largest Christian university, 17,000 students on campus. Christ is everywhere you go. Jesus, everywhere you go. It's right there. And it's warm and it's rich. The Bible says when he establishes kingdom, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. But then in verse 30, he says that in this kingdom, these 12 apostles, uh, actually, it's not going to be including Judas. Someone's going to replace him. But they are going to, we're not sure exactly what this means, but they're going to, they're, there's going to be some continued form of human government and they're going to have a role. So you would have thought in light of their awful behavior, you would have thought you would have kept a secret for a while or chosen some other time to tell them. You know, put them in the penalty box a little while. Jesus, come on. But no, that's not what grace looks like. It's not what grace looks like. That's why grace is so powerful. It's often given at the most unlikely, uh, undeserving times. And let's not forget, your life, your life is, it's not all about receiving grace, it's giving it out. And, and listen, you need to do this. You need to dispense grace in a shocking way. I know with my kids, I, I've taught them this kind of thing, you know. Uh, like from time to time, we'll have a waiter or waitress that's just awful. Speaking of New York... Let's just beat up on New York for a while. And they post those, <laughs> those billboards. So we're in New York, and we have a waitress. And we say, oh, so where are you from? You know, that's so rude. That's none of your business. That's what this woman said to me. It's none of your business. And I hate when people ask that. 
and here's your cold eggs, you know, this type of thing. And I said, oh man, this means I have to tip her 50%. And my kids are like, no, don't do that, don't do that. I go, yes, and so we actually, we tip her like 50, 60%, and we get out of there. And they're like, that's just gonna encourage her to do that next time. No, grace doesn't do that. That's not what grace does to people. Grace transforms them. We have this, um, we have this, you know, living up in, in Mission Hill, we have this neighbor, man. For the first few years, she would call us and just be filling our ears with obscenities and, and for the most craziest reason, we just graced her, graced into her favor. Sent her cakes, mowed her lawn, shoveled her sidewalk, we got graced right back into her favor. She actually showed up here in church a number of years ago. That she did. I mean, grace does that. Notice how grace does that here. This week, let me tell you, try shocking someone with grace. He's shocked you with grace. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, some of you have heard me teach it so many times, 1 Samuel 27, David just gives up on life after experiencing the, the, the grace of God for years and years and years, and he goes and lives with the Philistines and lives like a dog for a year and a half. A dog! Just murdering people every day, covering it up, making sure the king over him lies to the king over him of what's going on. And, and then at one point actually lines up to go to battle against Israel, but miraculously is taken away from that. Goes back to his village, which was given to him. The whole thing was burned to his ground. Every possession was stolen, and including his wives, all gone. Whole chapter never mentions a thing about prayer. Never thinks think nothing about even about God. This is David. He wrote no Psalms written during that period. And it says though there that when the people were about to stone him, <laughs> this is what it takes sometime to get us back to the Lord. He turned and took strength in the Lord. And the Lord sent him after the Amalekites who had stolen everything he had, it says nothing was lost. Nothing was lost. He got everything back. But the most outrageous thing, the most outrageous, one of the most outrageous pictures and grace outside the cross is within a few days, God made him king. Read it for yourself. The last few chapters of 1 Samuel God's not going to raise people up into position until they know and understand the grace of God so they can dispense it. And he's given grace to you for you to give it out as well in the most outrageous way. He pours on the grace here. Verse 31. Sort of shifts gears. The Lord said, Simon, Simon. Simon was Peter's name in Aramaic. That was his birth name. Indeed, Satan has asked for you. Now, that's a creepy thought. That Satan knows your name 
and he asks for you. That he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So here, we have Jesus doing, there's still some unfinished business. See, grace doesn't mean he just is blind to our sin. There's still some unfinished business that Jesus has with Peter because of this argument that just broke out. He knows that Peter is in a dangerous place spiritually. He knows that. So what does he do? He actually peels back, not only for Peter, but for us today. He peels back the veil and gives us an astonishing look into the unseen world. Satan is real. And he's not that red guy with horns and a pitchfork. He's real. The Bible says he's a fallen angel. At one point he served God in heaven. We learn in Ezekiel on Sunday nights that he was a cherub, meaning he ministered to God at the, uh, at the, actually at the throne of God. The Bible says that uh, Lucifer, Satan, rebelled against God, was cast out of heaven, and denied forever the privilege of ever ministering the glory uh, in the glory of God's presence. And, and so now Satan's all-consuming passion for, forevermore until he's destroyed it, it is, is that um, his passion is to fight against God's glory, to come against God's glory, to destroy God's glory, including, including, listen to me, the glory that God wants to demonstrate to the world through your life. Satan wants to destroy that. Let me repeat that again. He wants to destroy God's glory, including the glory that wants to demonstrate through your life. So now listen, we don't want to give Satan any more airtime than he deserves. We want to give him more credit than he deserves. Don't, you know, please, 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 don't be blaming every conceivable little thing um, on, you know, on, on Satan, you know, whatever. I blew out my tire, you know, Satan's really attacking me. Well, what do you mean? You haven't changed your tire in five years. That's not Satan, that's you. Man, I was driving by Dunkin' Donuts this morning and I felt this force just pulling me in and man, Satan stuffed nine donuts into my stomach right down my throat. That wasn't Satan. That was you. That was your feet and your flesh. That was your lack of self-control. Let's not give him more credit than he deserves. But at the same time, it would be a grievous mistake, and this is the mistake that the churches I grew up in, to never mention Satan or really attribute him to some symbolic thing that really doesn't exist. That's crazy. Because he's real, and he's bent on your destruction, and he knows your name. He knows about you. Verse 31 again says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. So, First things first, notice here, it's wonderful to know that Satan is on a leash. And guess who holds the leash? God. Satan can't do one thing more 
than God gives him permission to do. We saw, you see that in the book of Job. Satan goes to God in the book of Job, and he says, can I have permission to really uh, attack this guy, Job? Uh, Satan says to God, you know, and, and by the way, God, I know Job only follows you because of all the blessings that you've given him in his life. You take away the blessings, you take away his health, you take away his possessions, he won't follow you anymore. And God eventually says, okay, go ahead, do whatever you want. Only don't touch his body. His life is really what he was talking about. In other words, you can't kill him. And so what does Satan do? Satan just doesn't, Satan's not, look, at, he's not into blowing out your tire. He's not into hiding your key. He's not into that kind of stuff. He's not into putting a little pebble in your shoe. He's into, what did he do to Job? Killed all his sons and daughters, destroyed his house and his possession, and, and the only thing he left, um, left was his wife, which normally is a good thing, but this particular wife came up to him and says, listen, why don't you just curse God and die? Wow, what a great encouragement. And Satan says, why? I'm not going to kill her. I'm going to leave her around. So, you know, uh, uh, you know he, this is what he, he's out to do. He is out to destroy you. But he doesn't go a hair's breadth beyond what he is allowed to do by God. So all this begs a question, and I hope you're asking it. Why, that, why would God ever allow Satan to do anything? This is weird. He gives him permission to, like, hound us? Yes. Why? The answer is this. In order to take away what is worthless and destructive in your life. And we'll see that right here. We have a perfect example right here in Luke 22. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now if you're familiar with wheat, there's a wheat kernel which you eat, but actually uh, many call it actually the kernel meat. Meat. There's meat, and it's surrounded by an outer hard shell. Some people call it the hull. But um, and the, the process of sifting wheat involves throwing that wheat, the wheat kernels, over a hard stone surface and having people stomp on it all day. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to stomp on you all day. In some places, actually in Jesus' time, they took a huge log and used an oxen to roll back, you know, over and over. Ever feel like a, a log, a gigantic log has been going all over you day in and day out? Anybody? Is it just me? Satan asked to roll a log over you. And Jesus said, yes. Wow, that's really odd. But what happens is that the hard, the hull, the sh outer shell is broken. The wheat is thrown up into the wind. The outer shell, is, which is lighter, is blown away. The meat comes down, which can be eaten. That's even put through a sieve or a screen even further. That's the sifting process. And what's, what's left is, is the life of God that can be manifest in the world. Great book about this whole thing, Release of the Spirit by Watchman Nee. It's in the bookstore, but um, um, this is what happens when you open up your heart to Christ. 
the life of God pours into you. The Bible says at that moment you're filled with the life of God, but you have an outer shell that needs to be broken. Why would God ever allow Satan to do anything to us? To break the outer man, the outer woman, to the outer shell, to allow the meat, the glory inside to, to come out. Perfect example, Peter. Apparently, in this argument uh, about who was the greatest, Peter was, he was really throwing his weight around. I mean, you're talking about the WWF here. Uh, you know, uh, the greatest? Is there even an argument here? Excuse me. Did you walk on water? Did you? Did you? Did you? No, I did. You guys remember that? I did. Left out the part about sinking. Uh, but uh, the fact that he sank, you know, it, excuse me. Um, do you remember who Jesus chose to go up with him to the Mount of Transfiguration? Excuse me. Who got the heavy revy directly from God that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? That would be me. And then, you know, you could go in, in, in Mark, Peter tells Jesus, look, Jesus, even if I'll, I'll fall away, I will not. Lord, I need to give you the inside scoop to these guys. I know them. I know these guys. They are a sorry bunch of dudes. I, I, really, really. But me, I, I, will, I will, you know, I, I, I will follow you to the, to the very, very end. It, it says in verse 33, but, but Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Verse 34, then Jesus says, I tell you, Peter. And notice how he switches his name to Peter, the rock, which means rock. The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. Peter's going to fall big time. He's going to wind up denying Jesus three times. He doesn't just deny him. At one point, he does. He did. This is he spectacularly denies him. A little, at one point, a little girl comes up to him and she says, "Wait a second, I know you. You were with that guy Jesus. I saw you with him." It says that he actually called down a curse upon himself. I tell you, I don't know him, and if I'm lying, let me go to hell. Let me be damned. Let me be accursed. Now that's a fall for you. That is one hard fall. Not good. Satan sees the weakness in Peter and wants to go after him. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like weak. Notice, notice, God knows, God knew before you failed that you were going to fail. When you fall flat on your face, it's not a surprise to God. You knew it was, he knew it was coming. And not only that, notice, he warns you. Don't be coming up to me and said, I fell into this big mess of a sin. I just, I don't, can't believe it. I just, it just happened. No, it didn't. God warned you. He sends out warning signs. Um, He warns us, but it it wasn't a surprise uh, to the Lord. It's not a surprise to the Lord when we uh, fall flat on our face. We're thinking, oh no, I have to go tell God. Oh no. Oh, let me tell you, God knew about it long before it happened. But listen, he he tenderly warns you. Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked a sippy like wheat, um, but he also, he, notice he also says, and this is just as the grace of God, but I am going to pray for you. I have prayed 
for you. So important that you spend time alone with God, reading his word and listening to him. Listening to him. Verse 32 says, but I have prayed for you. I am praying for you. You know, sometimes we fail. We fall big time. We feel so alone. God is a million miles away, and he has just shut down. We can't feel him. We can't hear him. We can't experience him. Listen to this. Read these verses. At no time is God more active than when you fail. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And it can just as well read, by the way, it could just as well say, I am praying for you. For what? That your faith does not fail. Now, is Jesus' prayer for you effective? 100 percent of the time. The minute you exercise your faith, which the Bible says is a gift of God, it will never leave. Why? Because the Son of God is praying for you that it won't fail. And the Bible says the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but the effective, the, 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 the prayer of a perfect man is always answered. And, and, and at the time of your failure, Jesus' prayer is effective. Look at the rest of verse 32. It says, and when you have returned to me, not if, not if you return to me, when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. So it's, it, you know, we don't hear as much about this, but here's some two verses that I want to share with you about how Jesus never stops praying for you. And we learn today, particularly in times of failure, it is Christ who died, Romans 8.34. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession, which means prayer, for us. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Real simple. Jesus always lives to make intercession, prayer, for us, for you. This is what the Bible teaches. Behind your failure, God is always at work. He's praying for you, and his his prayer never fails. The prayer of Jesus Christ for you never fails, ever. He's the perfect man, and he's the son of God. He's the God-man. Our problem is when we're coming, when we're trying to come out of fail, out of failure or some big sin or loss in our life, we have this idea it's up to us. We got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps 
And that's why for certain people, it takes so long to recover. They don't understand that it's Jesus that pulls them up. It's his prayer. It's his power. The reason Peter recovers from this, and he does in a wonderful way, is because, not because of what Peter did, but because of what Jesus did. He prayed that his faith did not fail, meaning utterly fail. So, I want you to just underline those two words in verse 32, but I. Please do, if you have a pen. Verse 32, first two words, but I, but I. The enemy seems to be rushing into your life like a flood, but I, says Jesus, am praying for you. You're feeling overwhelmed by temptation or failure or circumstances out of your control, but I am praying for you, says Jesus. You have a ministry or a job or a task that seems way over your head, but I. Just write out those two verses, or write, rather those two words. Cut them out of the piece of paper and put them over your doorpost. Or like Shatina said, in front of your toilet, in your shower, wherever. But I am praying for you. I have prayed for you. So important that we understand that in Jesus, that Jesus, he's always got the final word. Again, verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three, t- deny three times that you know me. He does go on to deny Jesus, not once, but three times. After the third time, the rooster crows. Peter looks up. Jesus is looking right at him with love, not condemnation, but is looking right at him. He breaks out and weeps bitterly, devastated, just devastated, just crumples down on the ground weeping. A few hours later, Jesus nailed to the cross. Peter and the other disciples, nowhere to be found with the exception of John. They are all in hiding, hiding from the Romans. They don't want to get killed, but they're also hiding because of their shame. Peter's in shame, and he's hiding Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and um, Mary Magdalene and others go to the tomb, discover that Jesus is gone. An angel appears to them and tells them that Jesus is risen. And then they say, go tell the disciples that he's risen and also tell Peter, like singles them out. This is Jesus' message for Peter. Tell Peter. And then in in the last chapter of the book of John, and we'll be in this again, but in the last chapter he's, of the book of John, Peter's just wonderfully restored. Jesus in his resurrected body meets the disciples on the beach. Actually, he continues to serve them. He's cooked them breakfast. Um, he says he singles out, uh, just as he singled out Peter here saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sip you like wheat, singles him out again in John 21 and says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course. Of course I love you. Jesus asks him again, are you sure? Do you love me? 
calls him Simon again, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me? He says, of course I do. You know I do. And then he asks him a third time, do you love me? And Peter says, you know all things. You know I love you. And, and what, does Peter, what does Jesus say each time? Feed my sheep. Go out and just like he said here in Luke 22, go out and strengthen the brethren. Now, of any book in the New Testament, in my, in my opinion, Peter's is the most valuable in terms of reading if you are in like big time spiritual warfare with the enemy. <laughs> in the Bible, maybe the book of Psalms, Job, also a good book, but Peter knew it, man. And he knew about restoration. And I love 1 Peter 1.3. It says this. We'll close with this. Peter actually goes on, and oh boy, does he strengthen his brethren. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. You see, he knew what it was like for his hope to be shattered and gone. He knew what it was like for that to happen. But after he's restored by the Lord, why? Because Jesus had prayed for him. He says, in his great mercy, he's given us a living hope. In other words, a hope that cannot die. A hope, its origination is in heaven. It's not something that can be lost. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on to say this living hope is incorruptible. imperishable. It cannot perish. It cannot be corrupted. A living hope. It's reserved for us in heaven by faith. And so I just want to conclude now. If we could actually, we could have the worship team come up. If you've asked to to pray, please come up. You know, holiday season what a time of warfare. How Satan just wants to drag you in. He knows your weakness. He knows your pride. He knows when you, you see a, a, a billboard in Times Square, you want to get, he, he knows, I, that guy, that, that Joe guy, I know how to draw him into a fight. <laughs> Let's put up a billboard. We'll see him. We'll see how Christ-like he has. He knows you. He knows what's going to draw you in. But God wants shocking grace. That's what he wants from us. Christmas is a wonderful opportunity. It's the, to me, it's the best opportunity of the whole year to show people Christ, to tell them about Christ. If you're here today in this room and you are, you have spectacularly failed, you're in good company. Number one, there's many others of us, me included, who have spectacularly failed. But number two, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is in company with you. I hope this message hasn't been in vain. God wants you back, and he wants to use you. He wants you to strengthen your brother. He wants you to feed the sheep. 
if there's been some kind of failure in your life, I want, you know, like that, and uh, where, where you feel immobilized, you feel paralyzed, you can't move, you can't act, come up and pray with one of the worship prayer folks up here. And, and because he, he wants you to be released from all that bondage. If there's anything else, that is stirred in your heart as, as I've been sharing this morning. You just want to pray about it. Don't leave this service today without just coming up, get alongside of a brother or sister and, and pray about it. Or if you've never in your life come to the point where you have said, you know something? I have lived my whole life sitting on the throne of my own heart. I want to get off the throne and I want to just let Jesus take my place there. When the worship team begins, come up and, and pray with one of the folks up here. Just tell Jesus before a brother or sister, yeah, Jesus, please come in. Sit on this throne. Forgive me for my whole life insisting and for refusing to leave. Sit on this throne and reign in my heart as the worship team begins. Please come up. Why don't we pray and they will begin. Please rise for, for the prayer, Lord. I thank you so much, Lord, for the wonderful grace, the outrageous grace, the shocking grace that you're always pouring on us. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you're always praying for us and that prayer never fails. We thank you for building us up in grace. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray for every man and woman and child in this room, Lord, that you would release them to their families, to their neighborhoods, to their job, to their school. to share the wonderful Christmas story about how God-man came into this world and lived a perfect life for them and then died for them, that they need not go to hell to, 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 suffer, to suffer in torment, but that Jesus did that for, for them and then he, did, he died for them and then he rose from the grave to pour out new life. And Lord, that our lives would be a reflection of that message as well. And do that for me, Lord, as well, I pray. And all of us here, in Jesus' name, amen.